0: Right, shall we start then, as we've got uh, eight minutes on the clock, and we'll... Uh, uh, oh move. yes, why, why not, why not? Listen? UK Motor Talk Hello and welcome to another exciting instalment of our podcast, and tonight it's me, Mike. It's me, Jim, hello. It's myself, Graham. And we're all here. And of course, Andreas is as always holding his head in his hands at the cock up we've already made of the start of this podcast. So, guys, what have we been up to? What things have excited you for since we last spoke? Uh, well, I had
1: a, a very good day yesterday. I, uh, I finally got to use my birthday present from uh, August of last year. Uh, delayed that long due to Corona. I went up to Brands Hatch, home from home, and did uh, driving around in an M4 and then a Formula 4 single seater. So that was a uh, really, really, really good afternoon. Uh, made all the more interesting by a biblical rainstorm that um, that occurred about two laps into the Formula 4. So... That uh, that got my attention. I can certainly tell you that. And the um, when uh, when the drivers say that you're blind driving through the spray from a single seat I absolutely 100% believe them. Even though these are, uh, you know, they're, they're very toned down versions of Formula Four cars. They're rev limited, and the uh, the tyres they run on weren't that wide. But still, clearing a, a good amount of water. And uh, as soon as I got tucked up behind somebody, I I thought the heavens had opened. Popped out from from behind the spray and realised that actually it wasn't raining that hard, moved back in um, and, and just blinded by the spray. It was um, yeah, certainly entertaining, but I got a, a reasonable technique of just following the rain light of the car in front and waiting for it to break and then get past them on the straight and catch up with the next one and round and round we go, which uh, was working well until uh, heading through uh, through 30s, uh the rain light in front of me just, just got a bit narrower and then disappeared. Well, oh, that's that's odd. as he broken down? And then, uh, and then, just as the uh, as the spray dropped down, because uh, tyres tend not to produce too much spray when they're going sideways, I realised he'd spun right in front of me. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm doing about eighty odd miles an hour, and he's uh, sideways across the track. I think deciding which way to steer or when to let off the brakes. So I had that entertaining moment where he he didn't know which way he was going to shoot off the track towards the barrier. I didn't know which way he was going to shoot off the track towards the barrier, so I didn't know which end of him to aim for. Uh, but in the end, he went backwards, and I uh, I went inside, and round uh, we went, and uh, and that was it. But no, a thoroughly thoroughly entertaining day out, <laughs> and uh, if, if anyone's having a look at it and umming and ahring or writing their birthday present list or Christmas present list as we speak, uh, have a look at that. It was great value, 200-and-something 200 quid, 230, maybe 240 quid. Really action-packed afternoon. Um, good couple of hours there, and... Really, really entertaining, and uh, I think I might go again. But I might try and go in the summer when it's a bit drier.
0: It sounds to me like you ended up with a soggy helmet and sword pants.
1: Uh, I did. There's there, there were lots of um, lots of uh, cooling vents, I presume, in the in the nose cones. As, as I say, about two laps into it, I was I was aware that I was either very excited. Or the uh, the sealing around the front of the nose cone wasn't that good because we uh, we all got out looking like we'd wet ourselves, and uh, and the, all the vents on the top of my helmet that are wonderful at channeling air in and keeping you cool uh, are also brilliant at, uh, at channeling water in. So yeah, I was just aware of uh, of getting more and more moist around the helmet region as the uh, as the session went on.
0: Mm, well, it's a danger, isn't it? Grab anything that's particularly excited you. Maybe not in the well, same way as Jim this week. Well, no,
2: uh, but nearly filled my my pants with a a large stag running across the road in front of me, and my my, my wife Ooh. went to sort of immediate panic. Um, uh, meanwhile, I'm trying to pick. You know, what's the safest spot to to hit? I ain't <laughs> going to hit the stag. Uh, there's no cars coming the other way. I'm going to aim for the hedge on the right.
1: I was say not a uh, n- not the horns. Hit the soft bit rather than the spiky bit at the front.
2: There ain't no soft bit. It's gonna kill you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> don't don't hit a stag. I mean, it is really a problem uh, just at the moment because they're all rutting. Why the hell I'd want to run across the road when they're supposed to be mating? But there you go. Mm. There have been a number of near misses around my way, and certainly that was my experience. And it was a um, it was a uh, knicker soiling experience, I have to say.
1: Yeah, it's always uh, always entertaining when, as a driver, you're um, reacting to a situation or whatever else by the uh, the reaction of the passenger on the M4 laps, just as uh, a bit of rain fell towards the end of the session. the uh, We did get a bit of a, a big slide on, and the instructor sort of made a, a funny noise and went to go and grab the steering wheel. Uh, but in the meantime, I'd gathered it all up, and, and off we went again. He sort of went, eh, eh, oh, oh, right, well, well carry on, but, but a bit slower than that. OK, fair enough. You made uh, an interesting comment afterwards, which was, uh, you said well, you you've done a bit of track driving. So I said, yeah, I've been around here a few times. And he went, your, your, your track car's front-wheel drive, isn't it? I went, yeah. And he went, yeah, I can definitely tell. <laughs> so I think a, a slight difference in the aggression <laughs> needed in our, uh, in our Fiesta compared to the M4.
0: Well, the thing that's excited me this week, and I'm sure you'll find this equally exciting, uh, I have to say, not in the pant region, but certainly there's a lot of space for junk in the trunk. Um, is the new, oh, MG Ah uh, Five, right? Which is, if you haven't seen it, and let's face it, it is totally anonymous, a estate car that looks remarkably like a last generation Passat, that is all electric, and critically less than twenty five thousand pounds. So finally, if you want to buy something that isn't a Zoe, which is perfectly fine but quite small, a Leaf, which is mm, but ugly. Um, but otherwise pioneering, or a e-courser, which, frankly, why? Just why would you? I, I didn't think it was a possible to have a poorer execution of something made by Peugeot, but here we go. Nevertheless, if you don't want to buy one of those, you can actually now go out and buy, for what is not a lot of money really, on a PCP or whatever, it's about 180 quid a month, which is, seems to be pretty good, an electric car, which has uh, a range of over 200 miles, uh, supposedly 240 miles and can recharge about 80 percent in 50 minutes but what is interesting about this is they've got a crossover and everyone's making crossovers It's an actual estate car which doesn't seem to sacrifice any space in the back because of the batteries so if you want to have just a car and there's lots of gadgets on it but it's probably not going to be that exciting to drive i imagine it would be a bit wobbly and hopefully we'll be able to tell you about that at some later juncture then as a no-frills piece of motoring why not? Because you can plug it in, it'll cost you buttons to run. You can then spend your money on something more exciting. Well, potentially, you can spend your money on going on track days and single-seater experiences. One of which, I've actually got a book whilst we're on that note.
1: Uh, well, you say it looks like a, a VW Passat, but it it does. But it looks like, I didn't think this was possible, but it's a slightly more anonymous version of a VW Passat, which is probably <laughs> one of the most anonymous cars in the world. Perfectly fine car, nothing wrong with it at all. Not striking in the looks, but the MG does manage to make it slightly more vanilla than normal.
2: And presumably only available
0: in vanilla or beige. There is something of the the Mark III Mondeo about it. By that, I mean it's just everywhere, isn't it? It's the ubiquitous stand, or it was, the standard car that people would go to the TV. and it's the kind of car that, if it had a name, would be called Allen. Now Alan is a decent neighbour, really helpful, always happy to take something to the tip for you. We'll go to IKEA and help you put your furniture together. He's that kind of person. Uh, and if that if that was a car, that would be Alan.
2: Have you just defined the demographic for that particular car? Perfectly. Alan. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's
0: it. People people that were possibly born with beards. Already, you
2: know. <laughs> I can't <laughs> claim not? I can't claim that, but it's been there a long time.
1: I think it is possible to define somebody's name by the type of car they buy. I was looking at uh, a couple of our vehicles that we'd sold at work for one reason or another and it was the, uh, the plug-in hybrid version of the Cougar and And I discovered Posting. through some statistical analysis that 75% of our Cougar customers had the first name of Michael. So statistically speaking, if you drive a Cougar plug-in hybrid, your name is Michael.
0: Yeah, I don't.
1: And that's science. You can't argue with it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, you can't argue with the facts, can you? Uh, no, because it, it doesn't
1: prove that if your name is Michael, you drive a Cougar plug-in hybrid. It simply proves that if you uh, drive a Cougar plug-in hybrid, your name is Michael.
0: Yeah, well, that's. Mm-hmm. And this kind of thing, we can use Excel, which is obviously, I'm sure other spreadsheets are available, uh, but it's a brilliant spreadsheet system. Where we managed to do this without buggering it up. Moving swiftly uh, well, on.
1: I didn't it's have okay. that many lines on my spreadsheet to uh, statistically and analyse, so it was, uh, it was okay.
0: This won't date well. <laughs> I've got to book my experience at Silverstone by the end of the year and they've they've said you can now choose if you want to have something different you can be Aston you can do single seater you can do whatever um, but I think it's still going to be the Aston single seater does seem tempting
2: Aston's got to be the Grand Prix circuit yes <laughs> no, none of your national I, circuits I think
0: I did Stowe last time in the Aston
1: see I I like the Stowe circuit. I think that's a nice little mm. track that. That's good fun. It is good fun. Mainly because that was the uh, that's the circuit that we used at work for our Grand Turismo simulator challenge upstairs. So I uh, I know it
0: fairly well. Mm. Yeah, I like Stowe. D- we did the full Grand Prix circuit in my Grand Fiesta. Prix. Grand Prix. Grand Prix. We did the full circuit in the in the uh, in my first Fiesta. And it was so long because it's what was it how many miles is it? 2 miles? Or something? I don't I can't remember. A little a over miles, 3. I don't know. Mm, it, would have, it, it took a long time to, <laughs> to get around, my 1.4 Fiesta.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I'd imagine the corners would be entertaining, but the straights, yeah, they'd, uh, they'd definitely take a while.
2: They used to do the SMMT days there for, for the journalists, and uh, it was always held on the Grand Prix circuit, which was great because it was mm, whatever modifications they'd done that season, it was just after those had completed and just before the Grand Prix. So if I was doing some stuff on the radio, I could comment upon what the track was actually like that they were going out onto. So uh, unfortunately, the SMMT don't do it there anymore, which is a great pity, but I had a lot of fun there. Mm.
1: Did you ever come away with a moist helmet?
2: Uh, Yes, the Escort Cosworth (laughs) had that effect, I must admit. I said to the uh, guy who was uh, sitting alongside me uh, when I got out, it's a bit twitchy, isn't it? He said,
0: yes, it's supposed to be. It's a rally car, and it was certainly a handful. Well, here's the thing, though. Controversially, I would say an Escort Cosworth is a bit slow.
1: yeah, uh, yeah. The the last Escort Cosworth I drove, I I thought, yeah, it's not not quick at all. Yeah, but it was. No. It,
2: it had only just been launched then. We are going back a year or two. To
0: 205 horsepower or something? Well,
2: yeah, but <clears> by <throat> by current standards, that's pretty slow. But in its day,
0: I think this does point to
1: a bit of a problem, though in that mm. it it felt quite lively and 200 horsepower and and what did it weigh 800 kilos 900 kilos no uh, not that light it was no
0: it? it would have been no, well it would have been a bit over a ton yeah um
1: but then what's the what was the curb weight of your Focus RS 1.6
0: 1.7 oh near enough 1.7 yeah. yeah
1: so uh, really I think that that kind of paints a picture that actually although it was uh, what Two thirds as much again horsepower, it's two thirds as much again weight and this, that, the other. So Mm. actually you are, as uh, Colin Chapman always used to, simplify and add lightness. It makes it more exciting. Cars just seem to get heavier because they they have to get heavier. So they have to
0: get more powerful. The wet weight of the onion, as we tested this, you had a, a Focus ST estate at the time, I seem to remember. And I had the onion. We pushed the onion across the weighbridge so we could work out the weight across the axles and everything else. And it was nine hundred and sixty-three kilos wet. I seem to remember. It's nothing really, is it? With with fuel in there, you think that's that was a family car and not particularly not designed to be a light family car. Just designed to be a family car.
1: Yeah. See, whereas mine weighed what one point six, one point seven, didn't it? I know that was the estate version. I had, I don't know, I think I had a pram or heavy. something in the boot, but it was, uh, yeah, rather heavy. So, despite being a a good, what was it, sixty? Uh, what's a brake horsepower on yours?
0: mine but 145 is not not a lot.
1: Yeah, so d- despite 100 more brake horsepower, it was power to weight ratio I think they were about even steepens weren't they?
0: Mm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's surprising. It is surprising cars cars have got chonky. It is like they have been on lockdown and they have stayed at home and got chonky. <laughs> <coughs> that that is what's happened there.
2: You just got to follow the progress of the Golf GTI and and go from Mark 1 to the Mark current and they get bigger and wider and Taller and just more and more obese, and the Mark ones and Mark twos were uh, rather more interesting drives and probably still are.
1: Well, I think the uh, the Mark two definitely. I think the the Mark two to the Mark four. I, I think it actually went down yes. in brake horsepower, didn't it? Between the mm. two and the four, certainly the sixteen valve uh, and up in weight. The Mark four, yeah, 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 gain weight. So mm. all that uh, all that progress, all that development, and uh, and it was slower, A bit disappointing.
0: I'd I'd say I think we all agree though. we all like the Golf GTI as a car, don't we? I would say so. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I've I've
2: driven several of the early ones, and yes, enjoyed. But I've not driven a more recent one.
0: Uh, This is one of the few cars that we all completely agree on. I think the maybe not so much
1: the slight lukewarm reception there to uh, to the Golf GTI was. eh, But if you said, I think we can all agree that we love the Mark One Golf GTI, don't we?
0: Yes, Yes, definitely.
1: Yeah, yeah, much much definitely. more resounding, so uh, maybe slightly rose-tinted spectacles there. but
0: um, I kind of preferred the Mark II, just going to say that...
1: Um, I, I like the Mark II as well, but then I had a Mark II Golf as my first car, so I am slightly biased, so I'm uh, I'm with you on that
0: one. Mm. And actually, now I would probably have the GTI over the R, because I think it might be more interesting, front-wheel drive as opposed to four-wheel drive. In fact, I know it would be more interesting, because, well... You've driven both, you know, you know the score. There's something quite exciting about having a little bit lighter, a little bit more frantic front wheel drive hot hatch. Might be controversial. I know people like rear wheel drive, and four wheel drive is just better if you want traction. It is if you want to go quickly, four wheel drive is better. But I kind of enjoy driving a front wheel drive car. Some people might think this is sacrilege as a petrol head, but if you look at some of the fantastic front wheel drive cars that are out there, Fiesta ST is a superb drive. Same goes for the um Megan R. I can't, I can't call it an RS because it's not really an RS Rally Sport McGann. or if you remember the R26Rs the Clio 182s are a good example of a, a, a very affordable uh, excellent hot hatch now uh, and, and just go back we've got the Golf GTI Mark 1, Mark 2 Mark 3 and Mark 4 not so keen but Mark 5 onward also brilliant the 3s and 4s just didn't really cut it they'd just they'd got so they'd heavy, heavy
2: by that stage yeah exactly so i tell you, tell you what yeah. I did see just a couple of days ago in an auction catalogue, and that was a Clio V6. Mm-hmm. And I remember how much I enjoyed driving that. Absolutely great fun. And it was quite reasonably
0: priced. It was about eleven grand. I think the Clio V6 is an interesting one because there's a lot of theatre about it. I love the engine, love the sound and everything else. The impracticality you can live with, what have you. But, and this might be controversial, I've I'm ready to be shot down on this I genuinely think the 182 is a better drive I think there is something about the lightness of it, there's something about the way that it's, it's balanced, it just works brilliantly and you can have your mates in the back if you want to Well,
1: You could, you could put people in the back of a Clio V6 as long as you didn't like them very much
2: <laughs> Put them in sideways Yeah, <laughs> there, was, there was nothing for them to sit in or anything to strap them in and basically it was a two seat car so um, mm.
0: that's why it was great but, fun I guess the Mini 2, let's face it, fantastic front-wheel drive car. He's waiting, waiting. Oh, no, comment's not been shot down. Good. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of really good front-wheel drive cars. Hot hatches suit being light and front-wheel drive and doing the hatchy bit. The problem is now that hot hatches have got expensive, I think. And this is a problem for cars like I'm going to use the Sierra Cosworth as an example of this. You can go out and buy a Sierra Cosworth and you can spend as much as you like. An RS500 are well into the 100, 130, 150, depending on the mileage, whatever it might be. Um, An Escort Cosworth might be somewhere between forty and £65,000 or whatever. For that sort of money, you can go out and buy something really quite exotic. You could go out and buy, I don't know, a a used Ferrari and an Aston, obviously. But there's lots of things that you can buy. For that sort of money, the whole point of something like a fast Ford or a fast VW is that you have this, this fantastic little fun car that you can use as a hatchback, because that's the whole point of the thing, which means you can put people in the back of it, put your shopping in the back of it, put the dog in the back of it, whatever you like. And it's still relatively affordable. Otherwise, you'd probably go out and buy your whatever you might want to buy.
1: Yeah, there's the purchase price, but then there's the running costs as well.
0: There is that.
1: Uh, I dare say the running costs of a Golf R thirty two or GTI or Fiesta ST or whatever are a, a damn sight lower than an Aston Martin or, or anything with a V eight, V ten or V twelve in the the front or the back of it. Um but there is the it's yeah, I think if uh if you went cheaper cheaper end still, so rather than spending yeah, twenty-five, thirty grand on a brand new hot hatch, or well, like you say, even more. You know, go go much, much cheaper and and stick some money aside for, spares and repairs and things like that. Uh, you can get you can get much more interesting stuff for the money. So it is actually a wonder why car manufacturers sell any new cars at all, really. But of course, if they didn't sell new ones, then there wouldn't be used ones. Ah, because mm. a lot of
2: the people that are buying the cars are not enthusiasts of cars. They're not particularly into driving. There's, there's the majority of people are still. Uh, just driving A to B and, you know, they they drive it to go to work when they're allowed to do so. They drive it to go to the shops and basically that's pretty much it and they do, uh, you know, why why are all of the contracts based upon 10,000 miles a year? It used to be 12,000 miles a year and, and people's annual
0: mileages are going down. But what's interesting, I think as, as time goes on we're going to see Less and less are the types of cars you use to pop to the shops in. We know now that manufacturers find it very difficult to make small cars that can meet the emissions regulations, and this is all not very exciting at all. But in a nutshell, if the car's heavier, it can be a little bit more polluting. Also, if you want to stick electric bits in it, it has to be a bit bigger or it has to be a bit heavier. So generally speaking, these cars are getting a bit bigger and a bit bigger and a bit bigger. And I think we're going to start seeing the end of these smaller cars because there's not a lot of money in them to begin. They're harder to make more efficient in terms of the cost of building things with a battery in them because the cost of a battery is a considerable chunk of the cost of the car mm. of any size. And I think we're going to see bigger and bigger cars or perhaps less and less of them.
2: A you know, Classic going the other way. I saw uh, somebody the other day having great fun in an original uh, Cooper S 1275, you know, it was uh, very tidy, very well sorted, uh, right colour scheme, had all the right bits on it, and I remember what great fun they were. Even, even a friend of mine had the the 1071, which was a rather bizarre car, which didn't last very long, but the the um, 1275 was just a great drive.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it is a, uh, a slightly worrying sign of the times, maybe. I mean, Ford have knocked a, a couple of the smaller cars in the range and a couple of models out of the range recently. They uh, they did away with a KA. Uh, I think that was both a cost and emissions had an effect and and killed that one off. Uh, it's a bit of an odd indictment when they were selling it for, whatever it was, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen thousand pounds £15,000, and they couldn't make any money on it, which was a bit peculiar and, uh, and too polluting, but why they didn't put a slightly... A better, less polluting engine in it. I'm not quite sure, but then that would make it more expensive. So you go round in circles. Um, they've killed off the Fiesta diesel, um, but yeah, we'll I don't know. Will Will Ford kill the Fiesta off entirely? I mean, Vauxhall have managed to shoehorn electric running gear into a Corsa. If Ford can't manage to do the same thing with the Fiesta, is uh is it game over for? Britain's best-selling car and what has well, been the best-selling car since 1970
0: whatever it was. Is it not something like 9 grand more expensive than a base model Fiesta? I'm not sure I'd spend that to buy an electric Corsa. I just wouldn't. But it's it's not just Ford. Skoda have killed off the whatever their version of the is it the City Go which is the same version as the Up which is the same as the Seat Mi. That's all gone, but they're not going to replace it. And this is the same thing for the Vauxhall Adam. That was their small one. That's gone. So these cars are slowly but surely disappearing. And I think there's still a market out there for them. Absolutely. There is. I parked my, I say original, but original BMW Mini. It's one of the early ones next to a a new one the other day. And it it looked tiny by comparison, which is hilarious. And it was a a five-door one. It's quite bloated and quite long. And for some... Unknown reason, Jim seems to think that it looks the same as mine. It doesn't.
1: <laughs> I I've told okay. you. I, I apologise. I was doing it to wind you up by uh, <laughs> by saying that all new Minis looked exactly the same as yours. But I uh, I, I did feel the pain actually when we were driving along and uh, and I saw a BMW 3 Series Grand Coupe Turismo thing. The the thing that looks like it's I don't know. It's wearing a nappy and that's been shrink wrapped over the back of it. And, uh, and my four-year-old daughter said, "Oh, that looks like your car, Daddy." And and I felt I felt I felt no. the pain. So I uh, I, d- I do realise what I put you through, and I I did heartily apologise at the time. So drop it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, are we of same mind or opposing views? There's been much in the news since the last Grand Prix of uh, Lewis. Equaling Michael Schumacher's record and uh, Jackie Stewart, among uh, many others, seems to think that Lewis is certainly not the best driver ever. Uh, I don't think Lewis ever claimed to be the best driver ever. Uh, and I personally thought um, Jackie, as somebody who I had a great deal of respect for, was totally out of his tree. Um, <coughs> and uh, <laughs> th- this is a man who's supposed to know something about Formula One history. Lewis has equalled Michael's record of 91 wins, which is pretty impressive. He is now third in the ratio of wins to starts, which is also pretty impressive. And there seems to be uh, a lot of the people that are directing some unpleasant comments uh, at his achievements. You know, okay, he's got the most successful car of the time. Uh, of this current era, but then Michael Schumacher went from the most successful car, Benetton, to the most successful car, Ferrari, uh, for the benefit of all of his seven titles. Uh, A a certain uh, Sebastian Vettel uh, was in by far the best car, the class of the field with the Red Bull, for his four titles. Juan Manuel Fangio had the incredible knack of always picking the best car. for for his five titles. And, you know, it's one of the features of great drivers is that they are in the right place at the right time. And I I wouldn't take anything away personally from Lewis's driving ability because I've seen him do some extraordinary things over the years, as we all have. He ranks up there with the very, very best, certainly numerically. He has all the requisite skills and will feature in my book if I ever finish it. Uh, of the attributes needed to be a great formula one driver and there's not many have got those attributes.
1: Well I think uh, I think you're quite right with uh, with a lot of what you said there it's uh, yeah I was quite surprised by Jackie's comments because uh, he's always struck me as being a Lewis supporter and and being in favor of the chap. I mean p- putting all of his off track antics to one side and regardless of what you think of his fashion sense or his personality or the fact that he seems to become more and more American the more he wins, so he's now incredibly American at the moment, you know, putting all of that to one side, you you can't doubt the man's driving ability, you simply can't. And uh, as you say, he is in the the best car, but it's generally speaking a feature of Formula One teams that they try and put the best people together, whether they're designers, engineers, mechanics, marketing, PR, whatever it is, they put the best people in um, and that includes the drivers. So they look around and all the bosses try and work out who the best driver is and, uh, and plonk them into their car. So it's no surprise that the best driver ends up in the best car. That's that's the way of the world, that's the way it always has been, just as the best footballers in the world end up at the best football clubs and, and mm. round and round they go. And it's it's cyclical, you know, that another team will come along with uh, with a rule change Um And uh, and for a period of time, they'll be the best team. And you'll have a driver win a couple of titles and will that person be declared to be the best of all time or one of the best, etc.? I mean, I I think the debate over who is the greatest of all time is is very, very tricky to answer. And to be honest, I think it kind of depends on your your definition, uh, on the actual criteria. You know, if you just simply say who was the best driver of all time, then you probably need to look beyond Formula One and you need to look into the world of rallying, or is it, you know, is the best driver in the world, is he never sat in a Formula One car, he chose rallying, um, and off he went, if it's the best Formula One driver of all time, I mean, my opinion is, is that man was always, always has been and always will be Jim Clark because of his versatility and what he used to do, and again, his win ratio, and he'd hop in one car, you know, out of one car into another, and he'd win both, and he'd drive off somewhere else, and he'd enter three different classes that weekend, and he'd win all through him. He could just drive drive absolutely anything. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Formula One drivers these days, it's, it's a very specific skill they need to have. I think... Uh, Shout out to Nico Hülkenberg for his performance at the weekend, um, to hop into a car that he'd, he'd only driven a couple of times before, but not driven that car at that circuit, how quickly he got up to speed with it. But I think his qualifying performance showed just how tricky it is, because Nico Hülkenberg is nothing if not slow, and um, is that the right phrase? Nothing if not no, slow? No, nothing no, if not no, fast. the other way around. <laughs> and uh, Nico Hulkenberg is, uh, is nothing if not quick, uh, but the amount of time it, it took him to get up to speed. But I think it shows it's a combination of everything. You mentioned Schumacher there and, and his Ferrari years. You know, he had he had the best of everything uh, at his disposal, but that's also the team that he built around himself. Uh, he had sure. Bridgestone tyres designed to his exact specification, but that was Bridgestone looking at Michael and looking at the Ferrari and saying, well, actually, hang on, if we put our eggs in, in this chap's basket then then I think we'll do all right so they they got stuck in and, and that was the end result so yeah I was I was I was quite surprised I think you know for me as I say it's it's still Jim Clark and uh and then probably Ayrton Senna but Lewis in again putting personality to one side he's 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 got to be arguably top three certainly top five whether you'd put Michael above him you know if if uh, if there weren't political shenanigans and Michael wasn't being forced out at Ferrari, I think he'd have won the title in two thousand and seven. And then beyond that, who knows? Would it would he have maybe gone two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight and the Ferrari would he have then joined Ross at what was Braun a little bit earlier and, and without a couple of years out and developing the car around him? You know, who who knows? Would Michael have been on ten or eleven or twelve world titles by the time he finished?
2: Yeah, all these things are are entirely possible. One of one of the great things that you have to do to achieve those great numbers, and I, I think it's been interesting over recent years that we have so many multiple world champions on the same grid, you know, on the same races, which I, I find quite extraordinary. It never used to be the case, perhaps in the sixties and seventies. But I would echo your comments about Jim Clark. He was a great hero of mine when I was a kid, and uh, you know, sixty-eight Hockenheim was an absolute tragedy uh his uh ability across a whole range of cars on road off road uh, he could tackle pretty much anything he, he did have extraordinary abilities but uh but coming back to jackie for a moment i mean i've got a great deal of respect for for, for jackie uh i've interviewed him a number of times he's been very uh generous to me uh, over the years I think he's got it wrong this time, he's calling it wrong and I really, I ought to remind him that um, he also, for his three world championships and his 27 Grand Prix wins, which seems quite a small number these days I have to say
1: 27 more than I've won, but okay
2: Well, indeed so, and and (laughs) not to belittle that at all, but but, uh, the Tyrrell that he was in uh, was the class of the field uh, for several years he was in the right car at the right time, and sometimes that uh, covers up. I think the fact that somebody, some people's abilities are not quite at the top, one tenth of one hundredth of one percent, as to who's the very best of all time. Wait for the book.
1: <laughs> but it's uh, again, they, somebody might sit there and knock Lewis's achievements, or say, "Oh yes, it's it's easy because he's he's in the best car." But there is somebody else who's in the best car as well. And mm. Michael always had somebody else who was in the best car as well, and mm. so on and so forth, all the way back through time. And, uh, and much as there might be equal treatment or number one or number two status, etc., I certainly think there were more shenanigans at, uh, at Ferrari and Michael's time with the treatment of... Of Rubens and some of his other teammates, and quite it so. really was—it really was quite blatantly obvious that they didn't want Eddie Irvine to win the title so much so they just didn't bother to give him tyres in one race. I mean, you know, if if you're going to do it, <laughs> do it in a subtle manner. You know, get on the radio and say, "Oh, there's a there's a hole in your radiator, Alex." So so come in. Are you mm-hmm. sure? Is is it not just because I was moaning about the other team? No, no, definitely a hole in your radiator. Park up, you're you're done. The car feels fine. <laughs> no, 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 it isn't. Put, yeah. pull in, come in.
2: You you're and, uh, you're done for the it. day,
1: uh, yeah, pretty much. He, uh, he definitely that was definitely a telling off, uh, but uh, but no, there's there's always a, a driver sat next to him. I think it what the last couple of years actually has shown is uh, is just how good Nico Rosberg was. I think a, a little bit underrated at the time if a world champion yeah, become underrated, um, but it's um, you know you. You look at the battles that they had, but how many times Lewis came out on top? Um, but Bottas, who's a staggeringly quick driver, and and quite often manages to run Lewis very close, uh, or even occasionally beat him in qualifying. But over the course of a season, over the course of a race, he he just can't quite match him. You know, he's, there's always been somebody sat in the car next to him who he's uh, he's had to beat, and pretty much every year he's managed it as well with. Uh, the exception of Rosberg and, uh, and Button. So, yeah, he's, I, you can't say it's just down to the car at all, at all. Because uh, if No, uh, you, can't. If I was, you can't. If I was sat in that car, I don't think I'd be winning the World Championship. So, fair play to the
2: bloke. No, it's a whole combination of things. But uh, I also uh, believe that you have to achieve two things for, for, for greatness. You have to be uh, manipulative you have to be prepared to bend or even break the rules. Uh, But at the same time, you have to have enormous fan popularity. That's how you achieve greatness. Um, And distasteful as it sometimes is, uh, Michael was... uh, I've got enormous respect for Michael's abilities, nevertheless. Um, He had some dubious events in his career. And Lewis has had, uh, certainly in the early days... um, dubious events in his career
1: see actually i'm I'm not quite sure i agree with that because i think lewis is um again you know taking his his off-track persona and dress sense and musical taste and and whatever else uh, that doesn't quite align with my own take that out of it you know lewis on track is always fair and yeah, firm, but firm in,
2: but fair. I would agree. On
1: on occasions where there has been collisions with uh, with people, there's you know, there's always been just as much blame at the other person's door. You know, Lewis generally he he might have the odd racing incident, um, but there's always something the other driver could have done to avoid it. Whereas when you look at plenty of Schumacher's incidents, literally the only thing that the other driver could have done to avoid it would have been stopping, pulling over, getting out of the car, and walking away you know <laughs> michael would would do certain things that were so reprehensible he he'd just have that momentary lapse in judgment and uh, and do what the, the only thing he could think to do at the time uh, whereas I, I i really don't think you see that with lewis he had a you know a couple of coming togethers with alonso early on in his career but you would look at those as as rookie mistakes or learning or whatever else you know lewis lewis you know Never puts anybody into the pit wall at 200 miles an hour, and no uh,
2: you no so no, I, no. I think
1: he's a lot fairer on track than, uh, than some of some of his predecessors.
2: No, I would quite agree. You mentioned there's somebody who uh, I, I got a, a piece of info today that um, Barcelona track was uh, Renault were there today with the first test for Fernando Alonso. I'm very pleased to see Fernando back into F1. Coming back to he and Michael Schumacher, I remember one of Fernando's first races driving around Michael Schumacher as though he didn't exist. Everybody else was scared about uh, overtaking Michael, because he could be he could be pretty tough when, when it got very close. Whereas Alonso just breezed past him, you know, great man in front, who gives it toss? And he just he just went for it. I got a lot of time from as a racer, and I know Sterling rated Fernando very highly as a racer, as he did Lewis.
1: Well, again, I think the last couple of years have shown with Alonso his his all-round ability and the fact he can just get in anything and, uh, and drive it very well. There, there are certainly some parallels with Jim Clark and his range of abilities there. I think. Yes. Uh, again, yeah. some people said he'd uh, you know he only won Le Mans because he was in a Toyota, but oh yeah, of course, doing a, doing a twenty-four hour race flat out in the dark 200 miles an hour in the wet etc is uh oh yeah that's that's child's play isn't it i think it's, it's very easy to belittle achievements like that which uh i am not quite sure why the uh the world seems to do it you know you've got somebody who's sat there who's who's achieved greatness you know to be a world champion it doesn't happen by accident and for people to sit there and argue and say well it's only easy because he's got the best car or he was in that team is uh is is crazy you have a go see how hard it is
2: yeah i i, I quite agree uh I've only ever sat in one F1 car. It wasn't moving. Uh, it was Nigel Mansell's one with the flappy paddles, uh, the the first Ferrari that had those. It was so claustrophobic. It was so tiny in there. Nigel Mansell's a lot bigger guy than me. How the hell he managed to drive it, I, I
0: really don't know. For what it's worth, I think I agree with you on Jim Clark. Jim Clark was an incredible driver who could drive pretty much anything incredibly quickly and win. And it didn't matter if it was a Cortina, it didn't matter if it was a Formula One car of the year, it didn't matter what it was, he could get into anything and win. It, an incredible way of being able to, to feel how a car works and just, and just be quick and understand yeah. how that is, And to be able to get from one type of car to another. And this isn't just a case of, oh, you, you changed from front-wheel drive to rear-wheel drive, whatever it might have been. It was like anything so, so different. And perform equally well. It's it's an, an incredible feat, and I don't know if anyone has replicated that.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Graham Hill, obviously the only Triple Crown winner, um, would touch along that. But really, I think due to uh, contracts and insurance and sponsorship and this that the other, you know, drivers racing in one type of racing one weekend, another one the next is uh, is getting rarer and rarer and rarer. I think was it Nico Hulkenberg was the the first active. F1 driver to drive at Le Mans for 25 or 30 years wasn't he in a, mm. uh, and he mm. ended up winning which, uh, which shows the calibre of the uh, of the champ.
0: Mm. You can understand why there is a lot of risk that's involved and I suppose it's easy to go to Kibitza isn't it really as an example of this because potentially you are in the middle of a season you go away you drive something else you're, you're fast in that car competitive in that car but if it's something that I mean, you could say that rallying is a higher risk than Formula One or something similar. But if you were doing rally to to Formula One, and something does go wrong, it, it is a problem. I and mean, you do see racers that that do something for the love of you know race for the love of racing, as well as professionally. And you see um, BTCC drivers, for example, who might go away and, and race in something which is a um, club just fun series, like the Citroen C1 Cup. What great fun! What a great concept! The idea that you've got. A standard car on standard brakes on steel wheels and pretty much everything is, is standard. Who did we meet actually, Jim? We met someone, didn't we? Our brands.
1: It's uh, yeah. There was a chap there running around in a uh, in a Citroen C1. He looked like he was having the uh, the time of his life. And it's uh, but no, it's, uh, it? I think for um for a lot of drivers the 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 desire to compete in other things or drive other things is as you say out of a love of racing or or driving fast. You know that's what they fell in love with as a kid. Uh, mm. and that's what they want to do, but also it's it's known as practice, you know, to to not allow a Formula One driver to drive in something else uh, on his his weekend off or his his weekend away from a, when there isn't a Grand Prix is it is like not allowing Messi to train or not to kick a ball around because you know he might pull a muscle or snap a tendon having a kick around in the park at the weekend, um, but also you expect him to. Turn up and have a little kick around before the game, and and perform at, at the highest level. You know, I I do think that uh, lots of you know Kibitzer always said rallying made him a better driver, full stop. So therefore, it made him a better Formula One driver. Um, it's, it's like anything you do, repetition and practice, you get better at it and you learn at it, mm. so it's uh, I do think it's stifling not allowing them to do other things, but that's why I like drivers like Kimmy, because he just goes out and races other things and doesn't really give a toss what anybody says and uh, if <laughs> Kimmy Raikkonen isn't allowed to enter anything, then he enters under the name James Hunter he makes it up and he, uh, and he just gets on with it, Kimmy's just Kimmy, he never lets anyone tell him what to do
2: <laughs> That sort of uh, character, I mean I've got a lot of time for Kimi, just the, 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 the character that he is, but that sort of character is becoming rarer and rarer in F1. You mentioned insurance and, and the whole Kubica thing. The uh, insurance company caught a major cold and all the other insurance companies, not that there are many of them, that insure Formula One drivers, they just basically won't cover drivers now for virtually anything else. I mean, Alonso, uh, I still don't know quite how he managed to get cover for the Indy 500 or for Le Mans, but he obviously did. I used to work below, uh, in an office below somebody who I hadn't realised the top floor of this building, was uh, an agency that insured Formula One drivers. And I got back into work after lunch one day and uh, one of my colleagues said, you just missed Alan Prost going down the stairs. You know, there are very, very few companies that will insure Formula One drivers. Yes.
0: The Highway Code, something that most people haven't probably bothered reading since they passed their driving test. And certainly something that people clearly don't know or care a lot about, it turns out. However... There is a consultation period now because there is a hierarchy of things. Drivers and riders and pedestrians and everything else. There is a tiered system because tiered systems are popular in this country at the moment. Absolutely. And in theory, if you are the person who is in something that can do the most damage, and it doesn't specify what, because I'd argue if you're in a tank, you probably do more damage than if you're in a, I don't know, a metro or something, if you're off of the 80s, then you have the most responsibility to look after other people on the road. Now, in short, what I understand this to mean is if you're driving a car, and obviously motorists as we know are evil creatures, you have to watch out for cyclists. And if you're a cyclist, you have to watch out for pedestrians and disabled people and people on invalid carriages. And if you're a pedestrian, well, it doesn't really matter. You just do what you like. The idea being now that if you're a pedestrian, you want to cross a road, you go ahead and cross it, or at least the drivers should let you go. If you're on a zebra crossing, you should be allowed to go as per normal. And if you're on a some other crossing is the same sort of caper however as we know nothing uh, traffic lights and zebra crossings don't apply to cyclists at the moment so this will be interesting and one thing i particularly liked is that it said that cyclists should cycle single file unless it is unsafe to do so i.e., you're on a narrow country lane or something similar and this is something that i know that jim disagrees with me about and i think everyone has a right to use the road let's be honest i cycle and i walk what do you guys think because for me i think it sounds largely sensible i don't think anyone listen to it or care about it anyway
2: i think it's 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 very much common sense the detail that i've read and it's common sense good practice all of those things that that we should all be variously doing I was slightly intrigued by the fact that there's this consultation period uh, which ends on the 27th of this month. I don't recall ever a consultation as to what goes into the highway code. It's it's my experience in the past. Um, they simply gave you another highway code or another highway code was issued and that's it. You followed it or not. And if you've not, then you were probably breaking some law or other. So that, that just seems to be a lot of common sense, but why suddenly are they consulting on this? Nobody else does.
1: No, it's true. But I think the, the overall message, and yeah, if you're in something that's bigger and, and can hurt other people, do you have more responsibility? Well, yes, ultimately you do. Um, yes, of As course. long as everybody does stick to the rules I mean the the number of times that a cyclist has pulled out in front of me at a roundabout and and I thought well if, if that was the other way round, and I'd pulled out in front of him he'd have gone absolutely mental and there'd be mirrors smashed and people getting out and Getting out of the cars and getting off the bikes and having a, a punch up over it, but it's that it is that level of respect and and just giving people time. But it's um yeah the the cyclists that go through the red lights really irritate me. Uh, I nearly squished one the other day coming out of a car park because uh, I could see there was a red light and he just cycled straight through it. Um, but of course, if uh, if I had pulled out in front of him, then that would have been my fault, uh, regardless of uh, of who was in the right or wrong. You're simply stopped and. Let him get on with it and then called him <laughs> as I drove past him and uh, and I felt better about the world so there we go
0: pulling out of junctions without looking at all, assuming that if they hug the curb it'll be fine, maybe not even considering like there might be parked car or something around the corner and then the inevitable swerve and everything else I think we all agree that it, it's sensible to be sensible and the general Rule for life: If you want to, things to go smoothly, if you want to be able to get on with stuff, just just don't be a dick generally. And I think if you can translate that into driving, don't be a dick or cycling when you're walking, whatever it's going to be. Pay attention to the stuff around you; you'd probably be okay. Maybe they should just yeah. write that in no. Highway
1: Code. I think that is a fair rule in life, and uh, yeah, just I, th- I think that should be law number one, or in the um, the United Kingdom constitution, or wherever they write the laws down these days, or whatever it's called, yeah, just number one should be, don't be a dick, but it's if if the responsibility filters down, you know, the number of times that I've seen a cyclist barrelling along the pavement, and nearly mote people down, and then they look at you a bit funny when you don't get out of the way, you know, it's a... Cyclist should be riding on the road, and a cyclist cycling on the pavement is no different to a, a car driving down the road driving straight at a cyclist. You know, they uh, they get annoyed with it, but as long as everybody does know the rules, it's uh, it's always the rule about if uh, if you're turning from a major road into a minor road. Any pedestrian that's already started crossing has priority as, well, actually anyone in the road, whether it's a, a car, or a horse, donkey, pedestrian, cyclist or whatever. Um, and I, uh, I do remember I was crossing the road and, and got beeped at by a policeman one day as he'd he turned into the road after I'd started crossing and he, and he beeped the horn at me. And I, I did suggest to the officer that he did go away and learn the highway code, but I found it very, very, very odd that I had to chastise a policeman for not knowing the Hmm. highway code and I thought well if if he doesn't know it if he hasn't taken the time to sit down and read it what hope is there for anyone else you wouldn't
2: have been doing that in America you'd have ended up looking somewhat like a colander
0: (laughs) let's suggest this if you have a better suggestion for how to fix the highway code write to us at don't be a dick UK Motor Talk Towers PO Box whatever it is anyway enough of the highway code what are we looking forward to in the time between we next speak to these good people and now well, I'm looking forward to uh, to a bit more track time because uh, we've
1: got a track day booked on, uh, on Monday the 26th, I think it is, isn't it? At, uh, at our old favourite circuit, Brands Hatch. So uh, it'll be good to give that a run out and see if all the tinkering and
0: maintenance and stickers we've put on it uh, make it go any faster. What have we done since the last time that we, we took the car out? We've put lightweight wheels on it. We've put, uh, we put, we put stickier tyres on it. And we've put stickier stickers on it. Um, we've
1: put and a we lot of sticky then, stickers, we... stickers
0: on it. That's what it needs, is sticky stickers. And you have not added a lap timer. You've added something else. Uh, I've added a a
1: GPS uh, speedometer, as our speedo honestly doesn't work. So, yes, that's it.
2: Well, for my part, I'm looking forward to Goodwood Speed Week, which is on computer, online, uh, over the next uh, weekend. And I'm up for that.
0: And on that note, Graham needs to have a drink. So it's time for us to <laughs> cheerio. Uh, from me, Mike, see you later. Take care. From me, Jim, see you next time.
2: From me, Graham, so yes, we will go and have a, a glass of something uh, refreshing. Good night to you all. Bye-bye.
0: UK Motor Talk, a First Take Media production.